what is the voice? Certainty of others, the life, love, sight, hearing of others. Where is this voice coming from? I see you also face to face. This is Soundbox Signals, a podcast that brings archival recordings to life through a combination of curated close listening and conversation. Together, we'll consider how these literary recordings signify in the contemporary moment and ask what listening allows us to know about cultural history. Full-length versions of these recordings are available online in our spoken web archive at soundbox.ok.ubc.ca. How curious you are to me. Have you ever listened to a recording of yourself when you were younger and noticed how your voice has changed? On September 13, 2019, Megan Butchard and I got together with Canadian poet Daphne Marlatt and talked with her about the experience of doing just that. In our Soundbox collection, we have a recording of Daphne from 1969, when she was just 26 years old, talking with Warren Tallman about her second book, Leaf Leafs. Yes, she had published two books by the time she was 26. Our conversation took place the day after contemporary Daphne had given a reading here in Kelowna with her younger self, or her archival recorded voice, as part of our Performing the Archive series. The event was co-hosted by Megan Butchard, Aaron Scott, and Cole Mash, and took place at Milk Crate Records. It was sponsored by 2MST, Spoken Web, City of Kelowna, and the Inspired Word Cafe. In this podcast episode, you'll hear our conversation with Daphne Marlatt, but first, Let's rewind to July 1969 and hear Daphne read from Leaf Leaves. Four parts of mourning for 714. One, that petal's veins, rift blue, paired with razor, edge, tired eyes against the gold dust, daisies, in a jug dies slowly into water, seeping pink. Two, Moon drops early, roused rocks dry already, a firefly threats rain, it flickers, green light over, night sinks, rust. Three, white hood of a white pickup parked on green. Trucks can be steam risers, lettered white hollyhocks of sun, a whirl Cezanne in a tall tree. Four, like it flowers hail outside our back door stars, saws worm clots trod, morning, glories in deeper small shells. You just heard four parts of morning for 714. Now we'll fast forward to our contemporary conversation. In the first half of it, you'll hear us ask Daphne about her experience listening to and voicing poems at public readings. In the second half of our conversation, we'll talk about the archival recording itself and the experience of performing poetry with it. My name is Kara Shearer. My name is Daphne Marlott. And my name is Megan Butchart. And we are here podcasting or preparing material for a podcast. Um, so we have nine questions in kind of three different areas, but we also have a lot of flexibility around adding more, or I encourage Daphne to also like flip the questions back on us as well. Um, so it becomes kind of a, more of a conversation Mm -hmm. if we'd like Mm -hmm. to do that. So, um, there really is no, it's not a firm structure, that's for sure. 
Um, the first questions, though, have to do with poetry readings, because you know we are very interested in the poetry reading. <laughs> um, and Megan, you have you have the first question, so do you want to... Yeah. All right. So, Daphne, mm-hmm. um, can you recall the first time that you ever heard a poem read out loud? I actually... Um, I'm trying to remember whether... Well, the first poem that I ever saw that would have been a wonderful one to read out loud was on the wall of my grade 12 classroom at Delbrook High School in North Van. And uh, my English teacher had put up one of Allen Ginsberg's poems, which was the first time I ever heard about Allen Ginsberg. I mean, we'd been reading much, much further back. I don't think we'd even got we must have got to Dylan Thomas, but nothing like Ginsburg. And I can't remember if Mr. Patterson, that was his name, actually read it aloud to us or not. Um, it's the kind of thing he could have done. So building on that, can you, can you tell us about the first poetry reading you ever attended um, and what kind of impact it had on you? Oh, the first poetry reading was probably at UBC. And um, Prism held poetry readings, it seems to me, and there was another student magazine that did to Raven. Um, the first one that I actually remember, because I was very nervous about it, was one that I'd been asked to read in. And I suspect it was a Raven, a Raven poetry reading. Um, wasn't Raven as in R-A-V-I-N apostrophe. It was Raven as in the black bird, the trickster. And um, I said, I'm too nervous to read. I, 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 I don't think I can read my poem. And I can't remember whether it was Frank or someone else who said, you know, from the Tisch group, uh, who said, I'll read it for you. I have a feeling it might have been Frank. Uh, anyway, he read it, and I squirmed in my seat because he didn't read it the way I thought it should be read. And from then on, I vowed I would always read my own poems out loud to an audience. <laughs> <laughs> and so how do you prepare to deliver for a poetry reading then? Ah, oh, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, hmm. It's really interesting because it's uh, it has become more flexible as I age. I still start the same way. I look at the book and I look at what I feel like reading that day. Um, and I look at maybe uh, different kinds of line uh, that I might do um, from poem to poem. Um, sometimes, uh, it turns out there is a kind of, uh, image motif that's running through several poems. I think, well, maybe I'll do that. Um, sometimes I look at a poem and I think, I don't want to read this poem aloud. Um, when I was younger, I would take the book and I would look at the book and I would say, I don't feel like reading any of these. (laughs) And that was pure nervousness before a reading. But now um, 
I will, I, I sometimes get up and I think, no, I want to read this other poem instead. I mean, I, I, I prepare. I have a list of what I'm going to read. I even time it because everybody's so concerned about timing. Um, and if there are other readers, I don't want to go over my allotted time. But um, sometimes, like uh, last night, last night's reading, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to read the Bayo poem at all. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, no, uh, I really, I, I think after hearing Kurt read uh, his Kirtani poem, which used uh, a lot of the uh, language origins of the Kirtani family, uh, I thought, yeah. I want to read Bayo because that brings up a little of it, and it certainly talks about the relationship that Sveva had with her mother. So that felt more um, appropriate, I guess. I was struck by that too last night, how you know responsive you were to the audience and to the kind of moment and mm. things that were going on, how you were kind of recrafting the reading uh, in the moment. Right, right. Yeah, it, now that I'm the ripe old age that I am, <laughs> I feel more comfortable in front of an audience and I can, I, so it, it gives me more freedom to do that. Can I connect that back to what you said about hearing Frank read your work and then deciding, you know, that as an impulse mm-hmm. to want to mm-hmm. read your own work? Mm-hmm. Um, can, you, can you kind of draw us a line from that to kind of feeling much more comfortable and, and responsive and being flexible in that moment where there are kind of key pieces along the way in readings that no no I can't I don't think I can know how to respond to that it's more a sense of having grown into your own voice and you have a sense of what your own voice is and it's interesting to me that even then I was beginning to have a sense of my own voice and it was not the voice that was reading the poem nice yeah Mm -hmm. thank you Daphne, can you share some of your thoughts on the significance of the live poetry reading during the period of the 1960s? Yeah, the live poetry reading was very important. It was uh, it was a social glue, in a sense, that held all of us writers together. Um, it was an occasion for uh, being serious and being hilarious at the same time. Um, no doubt there was room for a lot of grandstanding. <laughs> um, but uh, because, you know, the group of writers that I knew um, met regularly, once a month anyway, and sometimes more if we met in Warren's, at Warren's house to read to each other or talk, discuss. For instance, we had one evening where uh, we had a long discussion of Olson's essay on projective verse, trying to figure out what what, it, what he was saying and how that applied to any of us. Um, so there was a lot of uh, push and pull, um, give and take, and um, there. I think the importance of those those live readings was that it brought uh, the language back into the body. The body was very present uh, in how in the voicing, each person's characteristic voicing of line, voicing of um, sound patterns, and so on. And I think that it uh, clued us into that very quickly. 
students. And you were doing that as students, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about a time when you were undergrads yeah, at yeah, UBC. Yeah, well, some of them were, I mean, several of them were older than me. And um, they were, they left in 63, right after the 63 conference and went on to graduate school. Whereas uh, I still had another year anyway as an undergraduate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I can't figure out, I mean, some of them were doing student teaching too, I think. So I don't know if they stayed an extra year or the honors program required an extra year. I have no idea. I just don't remember all of that. And yeah. were you also a st- like that student group? That's kind of like the writers workshop group and and others. the Tisch group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you also going to like see other visiting writers give? Oh, readings? definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember Leonard Cohen coming to give what? a reading. Yes, a poetry <laughs> reading from uh, what was it? Spice Box of the Earth, his first book, mm-hmm. and uh, that was remarkable because it was. Um, he started out, it was in a, in a classroom in the Buchanan building, and he started out to read, and uh, he suddenly stopped in the middle of a line. And we all thought, what? What's going on? And he said something like, no, that's not right. And he started again. And I was very impressed by that. Like, uh, he was being so true to his sense of the line um, and he wanted it to come across the way he wanted it to come across. And that was a moment of freedom, freeing for me because I realized the importance of that. And then I heard Irving Layton read. I uh, can't remember. Maybe that was in the old uh, auditorium. Um, it was on, there, there was a kind of a stage set up, but it wasn't... It was lower than a than a proper theater stage, so I don't know where it was, which room. But there he was. He had two young women posed on this little stage on each side of him, Leighton. <laughs> <You know, laughs> and, um, you know, okay, you know, well, that's okay. That's Leighton. That's Irving Leighton. It was a very different reading from Leonard Cohen's. And then, of course, we had these arts festivals that began and they they were starting uh, to do that as, and they brought in incredible people like um, um, oh, all these names are going to escape me at 77 memory begins to go um, there's a New York poet oh, cannot remember his name uh, and he did these very uh, to us, astonishing readings, which were not readings, they were performances. And he assigned lines to a number of us to say as we walked around the auditorium. But that really stuck in my mind because uh, it was it was the beginning of the language uh, approach, the, the language school of writers in the U.S. And it was the beginning of that, I think, uh, very different from um, the aesthetic that uh, we had developed and grown up with through the San Francisco poets coming up, especially Robert Duncan, but Jack Spicer too, and of course Robin Blazer. So it was uh, a bit of an eye-opener to me that you could do that kind of thing with language. And it was it was like doing in language what John Cage was doing in music. Cool. Yeah. 
Who is organizing that festival? Is that there was a, No, there was a group. There was a group of faculty people uh, from, I think, theater people as well as music people and uh, people from English, literary people. Uh, it was great. Um, it was wonderful. It was very. It brought the outside world to us in performance, and uh, it was very exciting. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Were you there for the Jack Spicer reading in sixty? Was it sixty-five? Uh, no, I was okay. not there. I was in Bloomington, Indiana. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. 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 It sounds like an incredible. I mean, just I always kind of think about myself you know, being back at that, mm. you know, mm. wanting, wanting to be back and that kind of moment of just a kind of heady reading. Oh, and... yeah. Well, Robert Duncan, of course, was the big one for me and for a number of us um, because he was, he himself was so dramatic walking. I can see him walking between the catalpa trees, striding between them in his black cape on the way to giving a reading in the Buchanan building. <laughs> That's amazing. It, it, I learned a lot from Robert Duncan. A lot about language and uh, the music of language and how language carries breath and spirit. Can I ask you, following on that, um, you know, you had read the Black Mountain Poets before they arrived in 63. I mean, they, I guess they read at different times, some of them at UBC. Yeah, yeah. But like prior to meeting them in person, had you formed ideas about... Um, kind of about them that maybe were changed by meeting them in person? Yeah. Um, I had no idea that Denise Levertov, for instance, was such a dynamic reader. Um, that, was a, that was a wonderful event. And, uh, and she was so open to, to young women poets. I mean, I had a copy with her in a chat about my imminent marriage and whether I could continue writing. And she was great. She was very supportive. Um, Robert Duncan we knew because he'd come up several times before 63. Um, Olson was a revelation because he was such a large man and his work was so large in its scope. Um, and yet he was very open to talking to us. You know, like one of the things he said to me in Warren's, Warren and Ellen's kitchen was, uh, when I told him, you know, he asked me where I'd grown up, and so I told him I spent my childhood in Penang and grew up in North Bend, and he said, you should write about Penang. And I'm only just doing this now in my late 70s. <laughs> but some things kind of stay with you, you know? Um you get gifts like that. And Creeley, uh, we knew Creeley, um, and uh, he, he had taught a wonderful creative writing course. I think it was the first creative writing course that the English department had given. And it was, um, I mean, Earl Bernie was busy trying to get a creative writing department going. But I took that one from Robert, and uh, Bob Creeley, yeah. Uh, Bob didn't teach it like a workshop, like we know creative writing workshops these days. What he did was he brought in a lot of ideas in the form of uh, reading assignments and discussions of what we had read and how you would have 
how does that relate to what you're writing? It was very uh, it was very opening for me. It was it was about at the level of the older Tish poets. So uh, I I was I was floundering around a bit, but it it uh, set the tone for me, set the bar really high intellectually. Yeah. Nice. Can I pick up on that mm-hmm. and ask? I mean, some of the things that strike me about um, like your descriptions of you know, the creative writing course or, you know, your experiences in English courses are so different from how courses are run these days, typically. Yes. Um, You know, so that description and then what you said the other night about Warren teaching an English course, but having you, you know, having students do a lot of reading aloud. Yeah, right. Um, Can you can you take us back to that for a second? Just Uh, the role of reading aloud? Right, right. That was that particular course we did a lot of Whitman in. And uh, it was a it was a poetry read it was a poetry a course on poetry, and it's funny I can't remember who else we studied, but Whitman was an eye opener because, in a way, it was a bit excruciating for the class. He didn't want to talk about the content of the poem, uh, several poems. He just had different students read aloud. He'd go he'd point to someone and say, "Okay, you read this one." Um, person would read it and he'd say, you read that and you read that. And of course, we would hear all these different versions of the same poem and uh, we would all be thinking, okay, what is the version he he's looking for? <laughs> <laughs> but what it did was it opened us up to hearing the poetry, hearing how the words were moving together and musically Rhythmically, uh, semantically. Nice. Yeah. So we have another set of questions that have to do with this recording of Leaf Leafs um, in an interview that you did with Warren Tallman in July 21st, 22nd, 25th, <laughs> 1969. Warren's not really sure what day it was recorded. But um, I wanted to ask you about that recording in the next couple of questions. Um, and whether you can recall um, how you came to do that recording, that interview about what was it? which month was it? July 1969. Um, it's a recording of an interview with Warren Tallman about leaf leaves, and uh, you've heard a copy of this where you read the full book in two parts, um, and he asks you a series of questions about it. It's interesting that date because I had given birth to my son at the beginning of May. So I was a young mother. Um, my body had gone through a major experience. Um, that was not the experience that I'd had when I wrote those poems. So uh, uh, what was interesting to me hearing last night at the reading, there was so much... Uh, my voice was so much more present in those poems than I had remembered my voice being. Uh, and I think it's because of the giving birth experience. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we sat in the living room where he usually recorded, and uh, I was very happy that he wanted to record the whole book and then talk about it. But um, I think we had some slight we had different approaches to my writing at that point because I had 
I had gone somewhere else. I had been in Bloomington, and then I'd been in the Napa Valley in California. And in Bloomington, I belonged to, I joined a small writing group that Clayton Eshelman organized. And um, Dee Alexander was part of that. Dee was a linguist. And uh, we had a very significant conversation, significant for me, in one of the local student pubs, they don't call them pubs down there, bars, uh, in Bloomington, about language. And uh, he pointed out to me that there was, there's an elasticity and a semantic associativeness and flexibility that I was not paying attention to because I wasn't thinking of language just as as a medium, as language. I was thinking of language referring to objects and actions in the world. And he said, I mean, this is Saussure, right? It's basic Saussure. Uh, No, uh, you should read Saussure for one thing, but language is a medium unto itself, and it has all these currents in it that you could be hearing. And um, that was a big eye-opener for me. So Leaf Leafs was very much written out of learning that and trying to put that into practice. Um, I find it a rather abstract book now, but um, it taught me a lot about writing because it taught me a lot about language. So what does this recording mean to you now, to listen back to it? And- well, uh, as, I, as I said... It, I was surprised that I that my voice was so present in it, in the language. Mm-hmm. Um, I was happy to hear that. Uh, I was still, I mean, reading it in Warren's living room was very familiar territory for me. So it wasn't like reading it aloud to an audience, mm-hmm. which was which I still then found very nerve wracking. But reading it to Warren, I can't remember if other people were present or not. Uh, I know when he had me read uh, frames of a frame, frames of a book, of a story. Yeah, see, I can't even remember the title <laughs> of my first book, Frames of a Story. He had me read that in his living room to a group of people when it first came out. It was a, I think that was, there might have been a fireplace. There might have been a fire burning in the fireplace. It was very, very. I felt very much at home there, and and a lot of my friends were there in the living room, and it was. Um, it was a big experience for me to read the whole, the whole of that mm-hmm. book. Warren, are you sure? Really? All of it? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, um, Leaf Leafs was after that. And, um, it seems to me it was more, I don't think there were many other people there, if any other people were there. Yeah, I didn't get the sense listening yeah. to it that there were others. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think Warren was trying to figure out what had happened to my language while I was away. Okay. <laughs> I suspect that's that occasioned that. Yeah, yeah, that transition from yeah. that kind of Black Mountain poetics mm-hmm. towards Duncan right. Creeley, especially. He, yeah, he really wants to emphasize. That's Creeley. right. Well, he's very close to Creeley's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can I take a little detour and ask about this concept of reading the entire book? Um, because that comes up in the Sir George Williams University um, recording as well, where George Bowering says, you know, back in Vancouver, 
you know, we would just, you know, a reading, you would just read the whole book to your friends. Was that a common thing? Not that I remember. Okay. No. I think, I think Warren probably, I think he, George was probably thinking about Warren because I don't remember that happening elsewhere, the whole book. Okay. Yeah. Was, yeah, just curious. How do you think that changes the reading experience, though, to read just single poems? versus reading something well consecutive. Yeah, well, there's, um, for me, there's always what you might call a kind of, uh, it's not a narrative in a book of poetry, necessarily, but narrative has always been of interest to me, and that's what Frames was, a, it told a narrative. But uh, there's a sense in a collection of poems of some sort of line of development through the book. And so you would only get that if you read the whole book. As a listener, I really love these moments where, you know, we get to attend a reading where someone reads the entire book because mm-hmm. it feels like this, you know, you've you've in advance made a commitment to, yeah. you know, to staying for that kind of duration. Yeah, and yeah. It's mm-hmm. a significant duration. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Um, and a kind of dedication to that person who's going to read. They're always, they're very, and they also feels like a kind of communal dedication. Everybody in the yeah. room is there yeah. for the whole, you know, for that's the whole thing. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I long for those occasions, although yeah. one cannot have them all the, all the time. <laughs> no, but it was a particularly nice to have an occasion like that in Warren's living room. You should always say Warren and Ellen, mm-hmm. because it was both of them. They were both such wonderful supporters of young writers. Uh, really, I mean, that whole phenomenon that's become known as the Tisch Group wouldn't have happened without them. Can you talk a little bit about Ellen's role in that? I yeah, mean, I know it was significant. Yeah, Ellen was Ellen was very significant because uh, not only did she help organize that 1963 conference, but she had the contacts because of growing up in Berkeley and going to—I mean, growing up in San Francisco, going to Berkeley. She had the contacts with Robert Duncan and Jack Spicer and Robin Blazer. Um, and she brought those with her when they moved to Vancouver. So there was a clear line, a clear artery, if you like, uh, for infusion. And um, she, I, I knew Ellen not as a teacher. She became a teacher. She taught at UBC later. But when I knew her, she was more the one that everyone could talk to about their personal lives, their problems. She was remarkable. I've never known anyone who could cook a whole meal in the kitchen while talking to somebody about their deep emotional angst. (laughs) She was uh, a phenomenon in herself. And I was really glad when she started writing in her later life about her experiences uh, meeting all those people. Um, and I wished, I mean, she had a very busy career as um, a therapist, and she was very, very supportive to a number of people in the AIDS community who I don't, would have been very different for them without Ellen. Um, and she didn't have much room left in her life for writing, but the pieces that she did write were so good, and I kept encouraging her to try and find more time to write, but uh, it was difficult. 
and she had her, you know, health problems as she aged to deal with. So, yeah. I think of her very much as, as you say, that social, you know, someone who had the kind of social connections, mm-hmm. you know, to invite those writers mm-hmm. up, but also who received them, mm-hmm. right, when they when they did come. And he talks um, on one of the recordings about actually, uh, you know, choosing Robert Duncan's poems and, and choosing the entire lineup for him and, you know, uh-huh. you know kind of orchestrating right. Right. the behind the scenes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. She was She was intelligent. And I think a lot of people might not have known that in the early days. She was very intelligent. Yeah. And also intuitive about people. Yeah. yeah, we need to talk more about about that kind of work behind mm-hmm. the writing. Mm-hmm. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's so important. It is. And uh, Gladys fulfilled that role, too. Yeah. Yeah, Gladys Einmarch. Yeah. Maria. Yeah, <laughs> very much. Um. So I want to turn to, uh, if you don't mind, talking about last night's reading because it was a pretty marvelous, um, marvelous event mm-hmm. in so many ways, and I can't stop thinking about it. Um, last night you read um, as, with with your former self, as we <laughs> sort of build it. That's right. Um, with your twenty six year old voice mm-hmm. um, from the archive as part of our performing the archive series. Um, I know you've only had a short time to maybe think and reflect on that, but um, what was it like to collaborate with yourself? Well, first of all, I was very, uh, very glad that Craig would key me in because I didn't want to read the poems as I heard them. I didn't want to read them on the page. I wanted to hear them. And so I couldn't always remember when the poem would end. And so I was always looking at him to, mm-hmm. to, to clue me in to when to start reading in my current voice from that book. Um, and we, you know, we did this sandwiching thing, past and present, past and present, past. So it was, it was interesting because it felt, well, it felt peculiar in one sense to hear my voice played back to me. And it wasn't my voice as it is now. Um, Bridget commented afterwards that she noted, noticed that there was still more English um, pronunciations, English English pronunciations, in it, which uh, and probably in the tone more than anything, I would think, um, and that voice was very clear about what it wanted, how it wanted the line to sound, and exactly where the breaks went. Um, it was. Uh, it was a musical score, basically. The poems were a kind of musical score. And that voice was very keen on paying attention to that. Um, and then when I read in my present voice, um, there was more focus on maybe image uh, and on the movement of a poem as a whole. Uh, yeah. I don't know what other people heard. Well, actually, I'm, I'm going to turn to Megan and ask her, what did you hear in that um, that kind of movement from the archival voice to the contemporary voice? Well, it was interesting to me because you have two different contexts in which you're reading. So the 1969 voice is just you and Warren That's in right. a living room, yeah. um, which you would think would be the more intimate setting, whereas last night's reading was in front of a crowd of, I don't even know how many 70 people, people. 70 people. 70, huh? <laughs> and... Um, in that case, you know, it, it seems like you would 
naturally want to perform more. And I actually found that uh, the 1969 voice was more performative uh-huh. in a sort of deliberate sense, whereas the, your reading last night was, um, like, I got the musicality of the words together more. It was a, Ooh, I felt it was a softer reading, and I felt uh-huh. um, like everyone was so intent and so attentive, you know, to your to your reading that there was sort of a silence around uh-huh. around your your speaking almost. It was, it was a it was wonderful. Incredible. Well, it was a wonderful audience. Yeah, and uh, you know, we'd heard such diverse voices before I got up to read. Yeah, and that audience was open to every one yes. of us. That was the astonishing thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very, um, Aaron Scott and Nicole Mash have really crafted, I mean, that's, you know, been a reading series mm-hmm. over the past mm-hmm. uh, more than two years. Mm-hmm. And every time I've been to it, the audience is so generous and yes. so warm. Mm-hmm. Well, Cole really sets that up. Oh, yeah. He's so uh, spontaneous and himself and no posing at all on stage. Yeah, yeah. I was saying mm-hmm. to him afterwards, I, one of the things I love about his, the way he hosts is that he manages to kind of move between the sort of different registers, like that mm-hmm. comic register, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, this sort of mm-hmm. out, outrageous comedy, mm-hmm. but then very respectful, thoughtful That's attentiveness yes. and seriousness as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just, he's able to move um, through those registers back and forth in a way that is um, very energizing and right. also, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just really attentive yeah. to the audience. And the space was really good for reading because even though, I mean, surprised to hear there were 70 people there because it didn't feel like that. Um, I mean, there are all, uh, there's all the records at the in the back and the shirts, T-shirts hanging up in the back and so on. But on the in the front, there's this peculiar platform of a stage with a, a, a an Asian carpet spread out on it and a Mickey Mouse <laughs> and a Mickey Mouse, <laughs> and a Mickey table. Mouse table that's right it's very uh well it reminded me of the 70s actually so it, I, I felt really mm-hmm. at home there mm-hmm. and also the way uh it was announced that this was probably the last event there because people were being evicted had to move and uh, Richard, I mean, the flowers for Richard, the the owner and or not owner, but manager of Milk Crate Records. I guess he's the owner of Milk mm-hmm. Crate Records, not, not the owner of the building. And um, how he got up and spoke so um, with such determination about the future mm-hmm. of the place. Uh, and then the diversity of the poets, the three poets before and then Shari. Uh, reading it was it was uh you know it did feel almost like being in somebody's living room mm. yeah. yeah yeah i mean even there's a couch in the front row and that's right everyone's just yeah, yeah. Just with with foot you know hassocks yeah. for footstools or <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah one of the things i've been reminded of over the last couple of days of the events that we've been from the events that we've been doing um just the kind of diversity of audience for poetry, mm-hmm. you know, that really I find very invigorating. You know, we've had at the curated close listening event first year students and, you know, students who are coming with, you know, sometimes very little background in mm-hmm. poetry itself or knowledge of a particular poet. And and they're coming for a variety of reasons yeah, yeah. and, you know, contributing amazing things to the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that struck me too in with Milk Crate, uh, with the reading Last night we saw a variety of of different different performers, different styles. Right, very much so. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and there was a, a variety in the audience too. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope they find a good place. Me too. Yeah. And keep it going. Yeah, because it is. It does remind me of uh, what the Vancouver poetry scene was like. You know, when there were readings in um, folk music coffee shops. <laughs> and uh, readings in bookshops, and didn't it wasn't always this staged thing where you sold tickets or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me too. I mean, Milk Crate Records is, you know, a venue for music and has been so mm-hmm. welcoming to poetry. And so, even Shari's response last night to your question, Megan, about what undergrad course yeah. had most influenced her. I mean. You know, our connections sometimes are very much outside of liter- you know, the literary classroom, if you will, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. the poetry community proper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's those other connections are often where it finds uh, growth. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, well, poetry should never be just an academic subject. It was never meant to be that in the beginning. And and one of the things that uh, I feel. The commercialization of the literary industry in Canada has done uh, is make it much more um, ambitious. Uh, the whole the whole award business, for one thing. Um, you, I mean, I've been on one of those juries, and it's impossible to choose the best book for the year. It's a matter of people's tastes finally vying, and you get some kind of compromise. But poetry comes out of life. It comes out of lived experience, and uh, it also reaches for something that I was thinking of this morning as uh, philosophy in the original sense, philos, Sophia, the uh, love of wisdom. It's about how to live how to be alive in this time uh, with all that we're facing as a culture, as a society. Um, And going through one's individual life journey as well at the same time. Definitely. I mean, in that sense, it has to, I mean, it has to reach out beyond the poetry, like the poetry community proper. Yes, right, Um, right. And be you know draw from and be yeah. responsive to yeah yeah. Um, do you think it could describe a little bit more sort of how your reading style has changed? I mean, your voice has changed some; <laughs> it's become less English, perhaps. But but your reading style. Well, how did you hear it? How did you hear the well, difference? I mean, I heard I heard the difference as being less uh, deliberately performative. Which uh-huh, was interesting, uh-huh. and maybe it was sort of the intimacy of having the mic right there instead of perhaps just you know a reel-to-reel machine in the room. Right. So right. there might have been a little bit. So I didn't have to project as much. Perhaps not. Yeah, but I'm not sure. Karis, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think what I heard in the recording was a a voice um, that was you know that was like clipped and deliberate yeah. and and you know for a long time when I've when I think about leaf leaves I think about that recording mm-hmm. and that's. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of in my head, yes. the, the reference point <laughs> for the sound of it. Um, what struck me when you were reading last night was the way that you kind of opened up some of the vowels and, mm. and you know, mm. it kind of lengthened some of the vowels and it felt much more kind of flowy uh-huh. and 
you know, the turns more gentle. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, then, yeah, that that particular stuff. But I still I hear echoes of the style, of course. Um, mm-hmm. You know, across right. across right. both. Well, that's that's good feedback for me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, you know, it, I've always had these two diverging interests in writing, and one is narrative, and one is the lyric. And um, uh, the narrative. The narrative also fights against uh, the sense of sequence, that sequence doesn't have to be narrative. Uh, and yet I've written narratives. I've written two novels, if not three. Um, and I fought against, uh, in each case, I fought against writing a traditional narrative. <laughs> so there's there's a an interesting conflict there that feeds into the writing. Um, and the, the lyric side of it has to do with my feeling that poetry is not about being declamatory. It's about music. It's what the music and the language, how it informs one, even sometimes unconsciously. Um, Writing feels to me much more like improvisation than trying to get from A to B. So there's a funny kind of uneasy balance in my work between getting from A to B as in a narrative and uh, the improvisatory. When you were finishing um, with Leaf Leafs last night and transitioning to um, some of the other work, you you mark that transition with um, a reference to the longer line, mm-hmm. right? The very mm-hmm. short lines of leaf leaves and mm-hmm. the move into this like long the longer line of Steveson, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it was it was wonderful for me to be able to stretch out into a longer line, and of course, I started trying to do that with the Vancouver poems, um, but even there, uh, they would come back to a short short line here, a short line there, and so on. Whereas with Steveston, uh, the writing was really informed by the flow of the Fraser River. Uh, that ran underneath everything I wrote about Steveston. I wanted the flow of the river there and the flow of history, which is, which has a kind of, um, what's the word I want? It has a kind of fatality to it that is like the flow of the river out to sea. You can't reverse it. You can't reverse the tide, uh, or not the tide, but the current in the river. It keeps on going out, and it keeps on going out into this disappearance into the oceanic. Um, And I wanted to talk about uh, the fatality of that awful moment in Canadian history when people who were born here as citizens, Japanese Canadian citizens, were suddenly stripped of their citizenship and sent off, basically imprisoned in in camps in the interior. And how, how fear is such a, a, it's, it's, it has a kind of fatality in it that, um, grabs people so that they cannot see outside it. 
Um, I wanted some. I wanted some of that to come through. Um, and so there was this. You could call it a driving force that was driving the line. But at the same time, I was aware of the music of the line because when a river flows, it eddies around the banks and it eddies around whatever it encounters in the current. And so there was this um, waylaying musically of that current driving forward. And I was really intrigued with the balance of that or trying to balance that in some way. And that's also picked up on the, I mean, the spaciousness of the page as well, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, um, which is why the, the books have those wide pages, yes. I ran into such trouble trying to submit poems from Steveston to uh, anthologies or, or magazines. I mean, sometimes anthologies would ask me for poems, and please don't cut the line. <laughs> um, and it, so to pick up on that, is, is the page... A unit for you in that sense? Yeah, the page is a kind of unit. And of course, then, uh, you know, poems will go over the page. And so that's interesting. Where did they go? Over the page. How do they get over the page? <laughs> yeah. Um, and especially when you're, I mean, when the work is anthologized, I mean, if you've had control or input in the, yeah. the you know, the page as a compositional unit in the original publication, mm that gets completely undone yeah yeah potentially yeah yeah, yeah that's that was has been a, co- a cause of great aggravation <laughs> um i want to ask uh daphne you and and megan so we'll start with daphne um is there anything you're reading right now that you would recommend to the audience the listeners yeah there's a book i picked up at mosaic books here in Kelowna. Um, I was delighted to see it's John Lent's new book. It's called uh, Matin Flywheel. And they are remarkable poems because they're written in the aftermath of a near-fatal heart attack. And um, he, I would say those poems, uh, they radiate that kind of philosophia that I was talking about as what poetry reaches for. Uh, there's a lot of it in there, as well as the daily. But it always has to be. The daily always has to be there, too. Um, and the other book I'm reading that um, I'm very interested in uh, is uh, David R. Loy's Non-Dual Thought. It's um, a very exciting uh, investigation of how uh, the Buddhist notion of emptiness, which is very present in um, Chan and Zen Buddhism and in Mahayana Buddhism, uh, bears, well, has been presaged or uh, it, there are connections with earlier uh, Western philosophers, including Heidegger and Kant. And, Kant. and um, he's talking about the non-binary. And I think that is such an important concept. It's one that I was first came in contact with uh, through uh, Rachel Blau Duplessis' work and fem- the work of feminist theory- theorists generally. Um, and of course, Lloyd doesn't talk about that, uh, which he should do, but <laughs> he doesn't. He's very, he's, he's on the, he's philosophical. And uh, it's a, um, it's a really interesting 
investigation of that, of the, those kinds of connections. And uh, he's now applying that to ecology and the environment. Uh, so I'm going to be curious to hear what he has to say about that. That's great. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Megan, over to you for final, final thoughts. Uh, what would you recommend? I'm in class right now, so I'm reading a lot of books for class. But uh, um, I've also been rereading Anna Historic, kind of in anticipation uh, of your uh, visit. Uh, um, that's a book that's meant a lot to me hmm. because of its topics with archival work and archival studies and trying to retrieve voices, often marginalized voices, from the, you know, the periphery right, and right. that have been silenced. Um, so, yeah, just rereading that and also thinking about the Spoken Web project, you know, more broadly um, and the sort of work that it's that it's hopefully doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, the archival is very interesting. Of course, I've used archives a lot in my work. What was it Olive Senior said in her recent talk uh, at the Writers' Union, their little magazine writing has, an, has a kind of synopsis of it, but she said something like, a place is never fixed. It's not fixed in time. We affect place. Place affects us, too. And um, the archival is interesting because it gives us a sense of what was there before we encounter it. We tend to think what we encounter is all there is. It isn't. And we need to have not only a sense of what was there before we encountered it, but where it's all moving to now, especially with climate change. Um, so there's, I don't know what you'd call the opposite of the archival, but it, it has to leap forward from the archival, just mm -hmm. as uh, indigenous knowledge of what the elders teach moves from very, very far back in what preceded us now here and forward to seven generations, the effect seven generations down the line. That's, that's the kind of view we need in our culture. Yeah. Sorry to get a little no, preachy, no, but <laughs> no. But a, a kind of living, a living archive yeah. that is is not just passed on, mm -hmm. but also co-created, maybe. Yeah. Well, the understanding of it has to be very much in the present, but it it looks back and it looks forward, and and it should be a guide for action. That was episode two of Soundbox Signals. You are listening to a recording by Daphne Marlatt from our archive called The Soundbox Collection. I want to thank Daphne Marlatt for talking with us and for allowing us to share the recording online and also to the Warren Tallman Estate for the same permission. You can find full-length recordings online at soundbox.ok.ubc.ca. I'm your host, Kara Shearer, and I will see you next time. <laughs>